Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week, we're going to talk about the biggest issue facing British politics at the moment, and that's inflation and the rising interest rates. And we're going to ask what has politically changed since the last time British politicians faced a serious inflationary problem in the 1970s. So I want to make five promises, five foundations on which to build a better future. First, we will halve inflation this year to ease the cost of living and give people financial security. The price of pasta has nearly doubled in two years as costs rise for a wide range of basic supermarket food items. Tomorrow, it appears certain the Bank of England will raise interest rates for the 13th time after figures showed May's inflation was no lower than April's. It's very hard. Sometimes you look on your gas and your electric and you started to cry because you don't know which one to top up first. Has soaring interest rates undermine the value of our homes? Does the British dream of bricks and mortar wealth start to slip away? Today, we've raised interest rates to 5%. My daughter comes once a fortnight for something to eat, and she has to bring food. We've taken this decision because, unfortunately, inflation is still too high. So, Helen, before we get into the history of inflation and how it's affected British politics, we should just recap how today's inflation problem started. Yeah, what we can see is that in 2021 or the middle of 2021, inflation moved above the Bank of England's right. 2% target. And really, I think that can be explained in terms of the recovery from the pandemic. In terms of the way in which the bank responded to that, though, it was actually to ignore it, which was pretty understandable because clearly the pandemic had been a big economic shock to the entire world economy and there wasn't going to be some rapid return to normality. So actually, if you look at the end of 2021, the bank was actually cutting right, interest yes, rates yeah. and it was doing so in a context in which there was a real risk that the economy would grind to a halt again because of the Omicron variant. What we can then see though in 2022 is that as the economic recovery gathers some pace and as a series of supply shocks that are there really, I think, particularly where energy is concerned through the second half of 2021 play out and are then compounded by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the impact of that on food and energy prices, that inflation really starts to accelerate. And then the Bank of England begins to tighten interest rates. It makes the first interest rate rise in February of 2022 and continues to do so through the year. But what we can see now is that Britain, despite those raises in interest rates, still has a higher inflation rate than many other Western economies. Yeah, because the other thing is Brexit, of course, adding into all of this. Yeah, obviously it's quite difficult to disentangle what's going on in terms of the different causal factors at work. But clearly, on top of the shock, shall we say, that all Western economies, indeed not just Western economies, have experienced, Britain has effectively had a labour market 
shot too. Yeah. Because for a long time, having freedom of movement within the European Union was acting as some kind of anti-inflationary constraint on the British economy. Which is quite interesting, isn't it? Because in some ways, that was always the opposite of what we were told, that it had no effect. Yeah, I think there was always a double narrative going on here. Because if you looked at a number of official publications, including the kinds of things that the IMF would say about the British economy, I think there was a clear understanding there that having freedom of movement within the European Union as a restraint on British wages and that that was positive from an anti-inflationary perspective. But obviously, actually saying that for our politicians to say, actually, freedom of movement was in some ways an anti-inflationary discipline, that was a politically very problematic thing yeah. to say. You think in the timeline that you've sketched out, I was at Conservative Party conferences listening to Boris Johnson talk about turning Britain into a high-wage, high-skilled society in which we had less immigration and higher wages across the board. And yet, in a sense, that's what we're seeing now. And now it's an inflationary problem, according to the bank. And you've got Andrew Bailey, the governor, saying, we are just paying people too much. We've got to stop these pay rises. Yeah, I think if you think of it in terms of various of the shocks that we've already talked about in this podcast to British politics over the last near well at least since 2015 so nearly a decade now yeah you can say i think that they've all had some effect on this yeah. problem yeah. is brexit in terms of labor the china shock or perhaps more precisely the way in which the world economy has become geopoliticized and the us china trade war and the push for greater national resilience also that means that goods are going to become more expensive because they're not going to be produced in the cheapest place. And then the energy shocks, which actually began the year before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So that's why you can start to see that inflationary pressure building up through 2021 before we even get to the war. Yeah, it's quite interesting to look at how we deal with this issue. As you've just set out, you've got all of these multiple pressures that are inflationary and are way beyond the Bank of England's control. They're way beyond the government's control. What kind of economy China is? Is it a low-skill, cheap product economy pumping out all of these cheap goods for the rest of the world? Or is it turning into a high-tech, high-skilled economy with medium wages? Is China and the United States in some kind of trade war where barriers are going up? How is Europe responding to that? All of that is way beyond the bank's control. And yet we have this one mechanism for controlling inflation, which is to increase interest rates. And not only is it just one quite blunt mechanism, it only applies to a small section of society or one section of society, which at the moment is homeowners with a mortgage. And as I understand, that's about a third of the population. Well, I think in terms of the politics, obviously, it's supposed to have some effect beyond that in terms of the credit conditions for firms. But I think that what is really notable is that there is this disjuncture between what the bank can do, which is as you said, Tom, a fairly crude tool, which is to use monetary policy essentially to try to depress demand in the economy with a significant risk of causing unemployment in doing so. And then these external shocks that are impacting on the British inflation rate. And at the same time, we've got a situation where the politicians 
need to try to look like they're in control of the inflationary situation yes. because quite clearly Richie Sunak understands that if this continues that that's a well clearly the Conservatives are in a very difficult position about winning an election anyway but it would make it near impossible for any kind of political recovery for the Conservative Party before the next election but if you think about it then in terms of the shocks that we've been talking about the only one where you could say the politicians could do something is to change the relationship with the European Union and to increase migration and to put pressure back on wages again yeah. that way, which is clearly a really politically difficult proposition for any party, I would say, in Britain at the moment, but certainly for the Conservative Party. But also particularly now, and we're going to discuss the deeper history of this problem in the next half of this episode, but right now we've gone through, what, 15 years now since the crash of depressed wages. So this isn't like it's a period of boom time for people where they could take a bit of restraint in their wages. Their living standards have been squeezed to an unprecedented degree. I think it's the tightest squeeze on living standards since the Napoleonic Wars. And so if the tool to try and restrict or to control inflation is to increase immigration to hold down wages. And to increase interest rates. <laughs> and to increase interest rates. That's a pretty hard sell. And also we should say that since Brexit, it's not as if uh, immigration into the UK has gone down. And last year we had uh, a net migration of 600,000, which is double the amount that ever happened during Britain's membership of the EU. So there's something strange going on about what type of immigration is this and why isn't it having an effect on the labour market as well? Absolutely. But I think it really gets to then this tension between whether monetary policy can really deal with the inflationary problem by itself. Because in practice, migration isn't going to be the policy that the Rishi Sunak's administration is going to pursue. Not, not free movement with Europe. So we're left with a situation where the only anti-inflationary policy that there is, is to make interest rates higher. And then that brings with it a whole set of economic problems, but it also brings a whole set of political problems for the Conservative government. And I think we should here go back to what happened to Liz Truss, Yes, government. It's clear that at a certain point, raising interest rates can cause really serious financial market instability yeah. that then spills over into a sterling problem, as happened to Liz Truss. And then having a falling currency in a country that particularly imports as much food as we do then becomes a, another inflationary problem. So it becomes a vicious circle. And obviously that is part of what the story of British inflation was in earlier periods in the 70s and 80s. And we're obviously going to talk about that. But I think that what we can see is that it's really, in a way, quite odd for Rishi Sunak to make the promise that he has done about inflation, which is to halve it, as we heard in the clip, yeah. where actually he hasn't got any viable <laughs> political response to it. Yeah. And the only body that actually can do something to reduce inflation, the bank, can only do so in ways that are really politically problematic for the government. And Liz Truss was working completely against the bank by essentially cutting taxes, which were inflationary measures, while the bank was trying to put the brakes on. Yeah, you could argue that actually that Liz Truss and her chancellor, Kwasi Khartoum, were actually trying to force the bank into an interest rate 
rise and the bank was trying to resist that. But now the bank is back in the position. Why were they trying to resist to that? that? Because I think that it was very well understood last summer, and that was true if you looked at other countries as well, that if you raise interest rates too far in the present debt environment and the present situation in the financial markets, that there is a very real risk of financial market instability. The government pays more for its debt yeah. as well. And that's the problem that the Federal Reserve Board has, in a way, been grappling with over the last couple of years, because I think we should factor that into the story that we're telling here because whilst it was evident that the Bank of England was rather slow to respond to the mounting inflationary pressure, it was only really following what the Federal Reserve Board did then, the American Central Bank, of being slow too, that all these central banks are kind of constrained by what the Federal Reserve Board did. And if you say then, well, why was the Federal Reserve Board concerned about raising rates too quickly? It was partly, I think, because they didn't want to cut off the recovery from the pandemic, but it's also because they have internalised the risk between interest rate rises and financial market instability. Right. So looking at this recent history, I can't help but detect a certain smugness in ourselves, in our generation who think, okay, we've solved this issue. It's a technocratic issue. You give the Bank of England the power to set interest rates and they will keep inflation under control. And as we've just discussed, it's just one part of this much bigger puzzle. Just to take one element of this story recently, I was speaking to somebody who said, look, one answer to why we've got super high immigration and labour market shortages is because we've got lots of Brits out of work since the pandemic. And we might be seeing an inflationary consequence of the NHS, essentially well, not collapsing, but struggling to get people back to work. You've got backlogs in waiting times, people not getting seen, so they're not going back into work. So therefore, jobs are being left vacant. And I thought, well, that, that's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? So it's the combination of all of these factors. And yet the government just says, well, bank, you solve it. And then the bank says, well, we can't because, you know, we need you to help us to do that. And we need China and we need the United States. And to some extent, then, I think looking back in the 70s and the, in the, in the 60s, and we'll turn to this now, but back then, maybe we were more honest about inflation and its consequences in that it was a political decision. It was a political issue, not just a technocratic one. Yeah, I think that's what we should turn to after the break, how we went from the politics of inflation in the 1970s, where there were a whole range of policy measures that were being used by politicians to try to deal with the inflation problem, not necessarily always particularly successfully, to this idea that it was the bank's responsibility and the bank's responsibility alone. The manifesto was right when it said that the first priority of a Labour government must be a determined attack on inflation. This remains. We've halved it in the last 12 months, but we must do more yet. The government's objective must be to reach inflation rates comparable with those of our major competitors by the end of next year. We are already getting there. The government has announced its long-awaited decision on Britain's economic future. The country will join the European exchange rate mechanism on Monday. And on that day, interest rates will come down by 1% from 15% to 14 It's the first cut in interest rates for a year. You've got to laugh, Alan, listening to those clips. James Callaghan in 
1976, speaking to the Labour Party conference and promising to halve inflation in 12 <laughs> months, which is Rishi Sunak's policy today. Although, what, I suppose one thing that has changed is the second bit of that clip was in 1990 and the announcement of, that Britain would join the ERM in a large part to control inflation. And the great news would be that interest rates would come down from 15%, which we're not quite at that level yet. But I think that's fascinating. But let's start with Callaghan in 76. That is a real inflationary period back then. And there are parallels with today, huge parallels. I mean, one, our relationship with Europe has changed dramatically. Only, what, five years previously we'd agreed to go in and then we joined in the 1st of January 1973. Edward Heath, the Prime Minister at the time, had thought that this would transform the British economy and had had his own inflationary budget in 1972, which became known as the Barber Boom, Barber being the Chancellor at the time. But it was actually Heath that was pushing for an expansionary budget because he wanted Britain's economy to be roaring as we went into Europe in 1973. And he felt that this momentum would just carry us through our inflationary problems. He sounds extraordinarily like Liz Truss now, when I think back. And then he gets booted out in... 74 after an oil price crisis from abroad and then you get the Labour government that comes in and inflation is embedded into the system the British economy hasn't transformed because of Europe and we're not immune to these shocks from outside of our control and then you get the IMF bailout in 1976 and then subsequently you get the winter of discontents the 70s are an extraordinary period so do you think when you look at it that we had a sort of better system for managing it then or a worse system? Well, I think regardless of whether it was better or worse, it was very different. Right, and I yeah. think that's what we should start with. I think you can begin to see the inflationary problem for the British economy. And that is both the level of inflation, but perhaps more importantly, the fact that it's comparatively quite high. Again, so compared to Europe. Compared to, well, not all European countries, but certainly compared to West Germany, is it starts to rise quite sharply from 1967. And I think there's two aspects of that that are really going to dominate this story all the way through, actually, to Thatcher's decision to join the exchange rate mechanism in October of 1990. And the first of them is a sterling problem. So 1967 was the year when Wilson finally decided to devalue sterling. After he said he would. After he said, yeah. And then the fact that there is wage pressure, wage increase, there's essentially wage inflation. And to some extent, and this I think is more perhaps a 70s story than perhaps the late 60s story, that once you get into an inflationary environment, you start having companies taking the opportunity of raising prices. Now, right. I think that what we can see even before actually 67, is that the way in which British governments of both parties, so Conservatives and in Macmillan and then Wilson, say, well, let's try and directly control prices and wages. Yeah, this is the incomes policy. Yeah, prices but it's also incomes. a prices and incomes yeah. policy. And some of that was actually directed not just against, was actually directed against companies like fixing prices. Yeah. And basically, essentially running a price control system and then Heath comes in, in, or the Conservatives come in under Heath in 1970 and say, no, we'll get rid of all that. That's not the way of doing it. We want 
market forces. And then, as you say, he gets sets up this inflationary boom and it has to completely to U-turn. And we're back to saying, OK, the way that politicians are going to deal with this is wage controls and price controls. And this is what those like Margaret Thatcher and Enoch Powell and his Conservative Party critics internally said, you just abandoned everything you stood for. They were right to yeah. a certain extent that not only had Wilson abandoned his promise not to devalue in the late 60s, mm-hmm. then Heath abandoned his plan to get rid of incomes and prices controls. Yeah, and that's clearly pretty divisive within Heath's cabinet at the time. And then if we go on to the context of the 1974 general election, which was, as you said, partly the energy shock coming from abroad, coming from the oil price shock, but it was also the miners, the miners' strike. Yeah. And the miners were basically trying to, well, the Heath government was trying to present them as operating outside the incomes policy that was now in place. But actually, the, all the apparatus had been set up for dealing with wage settlements actually said that the miners deserve what <laughs> yes. they were asked for within that framework. But I think that what we can see as the watershed of Callaghan is not that he wanted to say, we're going to get rid of the prices and incomes policy. So that Labour government ran an incomes policy in particular all the way through to the end, hence the winter of discontent as the trade unions or certain trade unions, I should say, rejecting the incomes policy and wanting settlements outside it. But Callaghan's watershed moment is actually to say we are going to use fiscal policy we're going to use public expenditure to try to bring inflation down a new tool yeah and we're going to use monetary policy in terms of having some control not quite the targeting that thatcher would do about the money supply but we will look at the money supply so the amount of money circulating in the economy and that we need monetary policy so interest rates to be sensitive to that. So I think that what the Callaghan position or the Callaghan government's position was is we'll have one set of inflationary controls that are direct prices and wages and then we'll use decisions the budget and we'll use interest rates which at that point remember politicians are making the decisions yep. about interest rates. So we'll direct everything. Yeah and they're doing this because the inflation problem was so acute. So I'm just looking at the figures here. So inflation in 1970 had got to 5%. It was then 10% in 1971 and 26% in 1975 following the oil price shock. So I guess you can see how they're reaching for more tools to control this problem, which is obviously huge. And as it was described to me, the result was this stop-start economy, which we had throughout this period where, in essence, once the economy starts to grow and grow well, inflation then roars alongside it and overwhelms the system. It kind of trips out. And the government's tool is to just squeeze it down by controlling prices and wages and then the budget and trying to just squeeze the economy into something close to recession and so inflation is taking out the system and in essence i think that's what thatcher does in 1980 this giant recession gets rid of inflation for a short period anyway i think though we should just add in one thing that's the context for callahan's speech which is by that point he's government's had to go to the international monetary fund and ask for a loan which is pretty humiliating moment the imf was seen as something that were for developing countries, not for a a country like Britain. And the reason why 
had to do that was because of sterling sliding a very rapid fall in sterling in the spring of 1976 and that point of transmission of inflation via the exchange rate so via sterling is a recurring story that's going to run all the way through to the ERM moment to Britain being inside the exchange rate mechanism yeah. for those two years between 1990 and 1992. Yeah, if you think Keir Starmer's got a bad inheritance, think about what James Callaghan yeah. had in 1976. And absolutely, because he took over in the middle of all this because Wilson resigned pretty much the moment the sterling crisis started as if to say, I'm not going through all this again with sterling. A broken man, right, by this yeah. point. Drinking during the day, couldn't even have the energy to walk his dog around checkers. He was just... 
as as I understand it, reading the magnificent Charles Moore biography of Mrs. Thatcher, she's writing notes saying we've got to think about the ordinary person, the ordinary family trying to get on the trying to get a mortgage or who has a mortgage. We've got to think about them. They're the core. They're our people, which is the echoes today of today are obvious. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what she understands by late 1980, early 1981, is that you cannot just squeeze inflation with high interest rates. Yeah. And so although the budget that the first Thatcher government makes in 1981, which is usually considered, or in, for some justifiable reasons, an infamous budget because it increases taxes in a recession, the whole point of it really is to get away from using monetary policy. Using interest rates is the only anti-inflationary yeah. policy that there is in saying we've got to get interest rates down. We've got to get interest rates down for home owners in particular, but also for businesses and therefore fiscal policy. So decisions about public expenditure and taxes and borrowing have got to be the new anti-inflationary anchor. But that then has obviously recessionary consequences. And in the end, it doesn't solve the sterling problem. Hence why actually by the middle of the decade, inflation is still around 6%, which we would consider now still on the high Absolutely. Side. Anybody who thinks Liz Truss is somehow an heir to Thatcher should go back and read the early biographies of Mrs. Thatcher in those early years. It's the opposite, right? Increasing taxes, squeezing the economy to try and get rid of inflation. It's just the opposite of Liz Truss. The Duncan Weldon book, what was it called? Muddling Through, his book on the history of the British economy over 200 years. He makes this argument that Mrs. Thatcher's period in office, or let's say the 10-year period from 1980 to 1990 is one of a deep recession at the start, a deep recession at the end, and then economic growth that is actually worse than what came beforehand in terms of year-on-year economic growth. One thing we forget about the 1970s, as you mentioned with the trades unions, they were able to keep wages going up in line with inflation. So people's living standards improved in the 1970s much more than they've improved now. And I don't think that picture that we have of failing Britain in the 70s and then recovering Britain in the 80s and 90s. I think that's a widely held view is really very accurate. No, I think you can say several things here is that if you say, why did inflation really come down sharply in the middle of the decade? And it's sort of 86, 87, really. We're talking about two years. It was because there was another external shock, this time actually a collapse in the price of Oil, right. sort of reverse energy shock, right. if you like, that yeah. Britain very much benefited from. So you could argue that actually more of the work of eliminating inflation is being done actually by the, the external environment than is necessarily really being done by Mrs. Thatcher governments. <laughs> we're like um, a plastic policy. bag flapping in the wind, yeah. thinking we're in control of these things and we're not. And then taking advantage of the fact that inflation fell, then you have more expansionary policies, what became the Lawson boom. And really quickly, they translated back into rising inflation. Yes. Yeah. Falling sterling, not immediately, but by 1989, 1990. And Mrs. Thatcher's government ends up really in the summer of 1999, like kind of back where they started, where inflation rate is concerned. In fact, I think there's a month in the summer of 1990 where inflation hits 10% again. I think it's August of that, which is the same rate that (laughs) that the Thatcher government inherited from Callahan. And it's in that context that Thatcher, who'd been 
desperately opposed to joining the exchange rate mechanism through the entire decade, particularly so once her chancellor, after her chancellor Nigel Lawson or her second chancellor Nigel Lawson have been pushing for it since 1985, has to give in. And the reason she gives in is because, as we heard in the clip, interest rates were 15%. They were in the third year of being in government. She would have wanted to hold election in 1991 as the fourth year of that parliament. You can't possibly go into an election with interest rates at 15%. And she thought that the exchange rate mechanism would allow her to be still serious about getting inflation down whilst getting interest rates. And it just shows how central the whole mindset of these politicians in the 80s were to saying, look, our political lives depend upon what we do with interest rates. Yeah, because they were so scarred by what had happened in the 70s. Well, from the late 60s all the way through. An economist I was speaking to was saying that you could make the case that even right the way back to the First World War to now is one long story of how... British governments try to control inflation. And as you were saying, it's linked to the value of sterling has gone from, what was it, $2.40 in the 80s to almost reach parity with Liz Truss. And it's just gone, and it's gone up and down throughout that period. And the search, this economist was telling me, it's a search for an anchor, some kind of policy which would finally give us stability. We could have stability And then the economy would be able to grow without this sort of runaway inflation overwhelming it. And so we've reached for different policies throughout this period. And you could say they're kind of all failed. So you don't have incomes and prices policy, which collapsed in the winter of discontent. You had monetarism, which pretty much she gave up, didn't she, in her first term. She couldn't control the money supply. And then she reaches for, or she accepts reluctantly, Mm. ERM and who was pushing that? John Major at the end, her chancellor, her previous chancellor. And that collapses spectacularly in 1992 after she's gone. And John Major is prime minister at that point. And then so he's left with his policy, his core policy in ruins. And that is the beginning of the system that we have now. So he creates the inflation target that then Gordon Brown in 1998 gives the Bank of England independence Mm. to try and meet that inflation target. But I guess in some ways we're back to using interest rates, as Mrs. Thatcher did at the beginning of her premiership, to control inflation and not using the other tools available to us. Yeah, I think that what begins under major as giving the bank more say effectively in monetary decision making or making it harder for at least the Chancellor to overrule the Bank of England's advice and then is formalised into independence for the Bank of England by Gordon Brown where the government effectively or at least formally sets an inflation target and then says to the bank set interest rates to meet that target that was all about at least in the conceptual sense saying monetary policy is the be all and end all of being tough on inflation yeah and we must let officials at the bank decide that because if politicians make those decisions they will decide it for electoral reasons yeah and we'll end up having inflation creeping back in because politicians will always want to cut interest rates in the run-up to elections. And I think that if you look at the ways in which Gordon Brown as Chancellor basically said he'd been vindicated by that decision, 
Yeah. It was all about, look, once you allow the bank to control inflation domestically and you have domestic inflation under control, then you have a stable economic environment in which the economy can grow. And indeed, he repeatedly claimed in that period that he'd ended boom, boom, and, bust. boom and bust or stop go, uh, translating it into the earlier yeah. language. And he thought that the bank deciding rates was a central element of the end of boom bust. But I think that what is pretty clear is that that interpretation of what was going on ignores the world economy. It ignores the external environment in which Britain could have a period of low inflation, relatively low interest rates and growth. Yeah, the, like the wind was behind us. We thought we'd solved it ourselves, but that was kind of hubristic. That's how I've started to think about this, that in this period from 1990, collapse of the Soviet Union, all the way up to, say, the, the financial crisis in 2008, this period that we kind of think about in our heads as a golden era where everything was working, like kind of moderate people were in charge, the economy was growing nicely, debt wasn't high, and interest rates weren't particularly high and inflation wasn't a problem. And we kind of solved politics. You give a bit of technocratic control to the Bank of England and Bob's your uncle, that's the inflation problem sorted. We're in the European Union and we've found a kind of settlement. We're outside the euro, but we're inside the European Union. We've got the city of London booming as part of this global financial system. We're kind of in the sweet spot of the world economy like everything is great and all we've got to then do is use the proceeds of that to fund public services and you have a sort of permanent sustainable model for britain to just race ahead into the 21st century as a wealthy prosperous nation where everything is under control and looking now you see how fragile all the different elements of that settlement were and almost i wonder whether the Bank of England is the last plank. All of the other bits of that settlement have gone with the financial crisis, in particular blowing up the economic settlement the British economy was based on, and therefore the political settlement of using the proceeds of growth to fund public services. What happens when you don't have much growth? And now we're into a situation where inflation is back as a problem. Do you wonder, when you look at that period, that actually we're just benefiting from China coming into the world economy with cheap goods, immigration from Eastern Europe, all of these things are creating a kind of false picture? I think that there's several interesting things here. The first of them is that despite the fact that Brown was making the argument that independence for the Bank of England had basically solved the inflation problem, mm -hmm. If you look at the arguments being made in the Treasury in 2003, in the run-up to the accession of the Eastern European states yeah. into the European Union and the question about whether to have transition arrangements, which, as we talked about in our episode on the politics of migration, only three European Union states, one of which was the United Kingdom, didn't have transition arrangements. The argument that came out of the Treasury was we need freedom of movement from these countries with poorer living standards for anti-inflationary reasons. Right. And Brown was, as far as I can see from the record, was of that view too. So in that sense, he himself didn't quite believe right. that yeah. we've got it licked, so to speak, by the bank. Didn't tell us that though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
so I, and I, I think that that shows that there was an understanding that this one tool anti-inflationary policy wasn't quite all there was to it. And the second thing I think is really interesting that starts to show up the year later, so the year after Eastern European accession, so in 2005, is that you start to see another oil price shock beginning. As early and, as that? Wow. Yeah, the prices started right, well, they actually start rising in like 2004, and they're going to reach their peak in the middle of 2008. But it's pretty clear by 2005 that the central banks, Western central banks, are worried about the inflationary impact of that increase in oil prices. And there's a really interesting speech that the then governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, gives in October of 2005, when he basically says the nice years have come to an end. And what he meant by nice was non-inflationary, continuous economic growth. And the reason why he thought they were coming to an end was because another energy shock was underway. And he's saying quite explicitly in that speech, you can't ask too much of the bank. Right. That we've got into this mindset, he's saying, where we think that the bank is not only delivering price stability, but basically also delivering growth. Yeah, And he's saying the Bank of England isn't going to be able to do that into the future because we're now moving into a world of higher commodity prices and a world in which there will be external shocks again of this kind. And I think if you go back and read that speech now, when he's basically saying, look, the idea that business cycles come to an end is like nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a kind of precursor of the problems that the bank is going to face in not only from 2021, once inflation starts to rise again, but now, because there's still somehow an expectation that the bank can find a fix. Yeah. And actually, it's not set up. It can't. Monetary policy, setting interest rates alone, cannot be the entirety of economic policy. How do you read his speech now? I'm just thinking aloud, listening to David Cameron talking about pandemic preparation the other day, saying how they're all focused on the flu pandemic and actually a, a respiratory one came along. There's Mervyn King in 2005 saying oil prices are going to end this cycle that we've had and then boom something else comes out from the united states and just explodes the british economy the world economy in 2007 2008 and it, so it wasn't oil prices it was something else that blew up that system maybe i'm being unfair on mervyn king there well i think he's vindicated in a way because actually the british economy was actually in recession probably as a function of oil prices before the Lehman brother bankruptcy. Right. But I think there's another episode that's, I didn't realize that's that. really interesting that we should just quickly talk about, which is what happens in 2011 when there's another oil price shock. So prices go surging over $100 a barrel. At one point, British inflation ends up at 5%, which now doesn't seem so much, but yeah. at the time was considered a lot and it was 3% above what the bank's target was. And what's interesting then is that the bank doesn't respond by increasing interest rates. And actually, the Chancellor, George Osborne, basically tells the bank that it can temporarily discard the inflation right. target, so accommodate yeah. an external shock. So you can already see at that point, I think, that this idea that there's a fixed target and that the bank just 
implements it and then there's nothing more to say about it. The bank just gets on with its job and there isn't any politics around it. That's kind of gone when you've got Osborne basically saying, just ignore it. This was the period when they were writing letters yeah. and the government was just like, thank you very much and just put them in a drawer. And Yeah, the governor had to write a letter explaining why the target wasn't being met. But then Osborne wrote one back to the, the bank, I think it's in 2013, basically saying that there can be a period of protracted above inflation above the target. I'd forgotten that letter. I mean, it, it does remind me that these technocratic solutions, they might work and they can work for a period, but the reality is interest rates and inflation are political because they have distributionary effects, don't they? They affect certain groups in society more than others. And so if you decide to use only one tool to target inflation, bring it under control, and you hand it to a body that has no democratic, well, they're not elected, then they're implementing policies that hit a group of people over another. And that's a political choice. And when they do so in a way that affects the governing parties ability to get elected that's not sustainable that won't yeah last. i think that's why you end up with sunak making the kind of pledge that he is he does sound as you said a while ago tom he does sound like callahan yeah. in that respect yet yeah, he's not actually got callahan without control yeah he hasn't got the policy instruments at his disposal that callahan had but it's very difficult i think for politicians to say oh this is nothing to do with us and please don't judge us for this, for the very reason that you've just said, which is inflation has distributional consequences and the different policy responses, the different pos yeah. possible policy responses have distributional consequences. And I think that that idea that was there in the 90s, and it wasn't just in Britain, that somehow everybody agreed that price stability was good for everybody. Yeah. And that there was no political contest to be had about that. And because there was no political contest to be had about it in democratic politics, that doing monetary policy could be handed over to a central bank. We can't live in that world anymore. We don't live in that world anymore. And then the question is going to be is, well, is the bank's position politically contestable? Now, interestingly there, Sunak yeah. seems to be saying no. He's saying he's in full support yeah. of what the bank's doing but if he fully supports the bank being tough on inflation and it, that it's the bank's job to do that then it's hard to see how he can also make promises that say we the government led by me Rishi Sunak are going to bring inflation down yeah and me the government we are going to grow the economy next year presumably not make inflationary decisions like tax cuts before the election or give any subsidies to mortgage holders at the moment going through a difficult period. All of that looks pretty difficult to me over the next year. So we'll see how much he is behind the bank. But then it'd be interesting as well where Labour end up in this, because I think quickly people will say that anyone who challenges the bank and the current setup are populist or that the Sunak and Hunt are automatically correct to row in behind the bank. But there is a completely legitimate case to say, well, no, this setup is blunt, not not very sophisticated. You need to think about this in the round. You need to think about the distributional consequences of a policy because we've had lots of policies in the past, as we've seen, and none of them have really worked. And this one's not working at the moment. So it's entirely legitimate. And in fact, a Labour government 
which looks likely to replace Rishi Sunak's Conservative government next year. Now, they will have to think about this. Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, is ex-Bank of England, so I don't think they're going to want to attack the bank's independence, but they're going to have to come up with a policy themselves that's more than just it's the bank's job. That's it. Yeah, I think that it's highly, highly unlikely that you're going to see any kind of dissent from Labour now about the monetary policy framework. In a way, that's the context of Brown's decision to pursue independence mm. like back in the 90s is that Rachel Reeves clearly thinks that credibility for Labour in economic policy means being tough on public finances, mm. being tough on inflation. I think it's more likely that we'll see if and when the Conservative Party lose the next election, that there'll be an element within the Conservative Party that will push to challenge yeah. the position. It's not so of, very sophisticated the at the moment no. either, is it? It's just the bank made wrong decisions. If the bank had only made right decisions, then all would be fine. We wouldn't have an inflation problem. And I think, though, that the constraint, the reason why the governing party will always be constrained in a way that the opposition won't about asking those questions is dissent from what is now the orthodoxy, particularly for Britain, will risk pressure on sterling. And then that makes the whole problem worse. Yeah. Because weakness in sterling does still translate into more uh, inflationary pressure. So we really are back to the 70s. <laughs> back to the problems of the 70s, but with a different politics. And on that note, Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share on social media, and shout about it to your friends and family. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.